This is the Human Action Podcast with your host, Jeff Deist. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Human Action Podcast. As you can see, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy. We also have a special guest with us today, Robert Aro. Now, many of you are going to know his name from Mises.org. He is one of our bloggers uh, who specifically covers the Fed. So when the Fed has a hearing uh, before Congress, when the Fed has a press conference, also those FOMC minutes, which are very boring and none of you want to read, Robert goes in there and digs around and really gets to the nitty gritty of what the Fed is doing day in and day out. He's also working on our master's program at the Mises Institute. So if you want to reach out to him uh, for more info about that or his experience in that, um, you can find him on Twitter at Econ Circus, all one word, Econ Circus. So I suggest you follow him and just go to Mises.org and press on the blog button at the top left and you can really keep up with everything Robert's doing for us. So all that said, gentlemen, we've spoken offline about our topic today. On this show and at Mises.org more generally, we talk a lot about central banking. We don't talk so much about central bankers. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to have a show dedicated to these people, these mysterious elites, these technocrats that uh, seem to be loved and hated at the same time, who seem to have so much of our fortunes in their hands, or maybe they don't. It just depends on how you look at it. So guys, let me start with this. Uh, Why don't we start at the head? Uh, Jerome Powell. All right, here, here this guy is, you know, first of all, born in D.C. Who, who's born in D.C., right? Nobody's born in D.C., a very bad sign. Uh, he's a lawyer. He goes to Georgetown Prep. I know all of you went to Georgetown Prep or St. Albans or one of these kinds of schools, right? None of you went to public schools. He goes to Georgetown Prep. Uh, he goes to Princeton. He goes back to D.C., goes to Georgetown Law. Very smart guy, becomes editor-in-chief of Law Review, ends up working at White Shoe Law Firms like Davis Polk, then transitions over to some very White Shoe investment banking firms like Dylan Reed. He ends up at the infamous, I would consider evil, Carlisle Group, uh, starts his own fund called the Global Environment Fund, which is kind of a BS precursor to ESG stuff, Uh, and uh, again, is a lawyer not a PhD economist. A lot of people might not know this, but the era of PhD economists, the Fed really didn't start till 1970 with Arthur Burns appointed by Richard Nixon. So prior to that, we'd had mostly lawyers. So this idea that everyone is a a PhD economist is actually something we can talk about in a bit here, but that's new. Um, So, you know, looking at this guy, very smart, not the best public speaker, I might add. He's got a lot of ums. Do you guys have this? Is he in over his head? He's clearly not uh, the kind of person who is intimately familiar with the day-to-day toils of Americans in places like Iowa, I would venture. Right. So I I guess I'll jump in first. uh, And and Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Yeah, I, I think you're right, Jeff. So just a little bit of the context in terms of Fed policy. So under Bernanke, you know, they kept talking about a taper. He, he just started doing it a little bit when he handed the reins over to Janet Yellen. She oversaw that. And then under Powell is when the Fed's balance sheet really did start shrinking significantly. But then, of course, all that went out the window when the coronavirus uh, panic hit. And so, you know, I, 
I, I think you're right, Jeff, that he, he, Powell does convey this more like, hey, I'm a real guy. I'm not one of these wonky people. Not that he's, you know, salt of the earth. And I know the struggles when you're trying to make ends meet and run a household, of course, but that he is more, you know, he's speaking more plain English. And I've, I've had other people who have no, you know, they're no fans of Powell, but yeah, say I can at least listen to his news conference or press conferences and know what the heck he's saying. Um, so I, I, you know, I think he probably had some sense that, yeah, what the Fed was doing under, you know, Bernanke was kind of crazy, but yet when they get in there, I think it's the sort of thing, you, if you're coming from the the banking sector, you can't just let all your buddies get destroyed. And and so, and maybe if we have time during this episode, we'll circle back and talk about Bernanke because there was this other dichotomy with him in terms of the academic Bernanke versus what he did as a central banker. And yeah, I, I think it's the sort of thing, if it were a person that we're going to let all the big banks go down, they would never find themselves as chairs of the Fed in the first place. So, you know, whether it's a corrupt dealer, just the people know, you know, who's the, who's the kind of guy that, or woman that we want in there who plays ball, you know, maybe that's the phenomenon. Uh, yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know, I, I read pretty much everything he says, and it's kind of just, I think he's just kind of a, like a point man or a, of someone who's just meant to execute or just to say the narrative. Um, and a lot of times he does kind of speak off the cuff and you'll get things where he says something like poor people are just prone to suffer. or Some people are just prone to suffer. And you get all sorts of just wild, almost Orlando statements from time to time. Um, yeah, I, I think it's probably just a job, right? He, he wakes up, he does his job. He probably doesn't think about the bigger picture. Um, and I don't know if the name is, you know, Mises Rothbard. I don't know if, like, I just don't know. Has he ever even heard of that? Is that a thing or, or it's, you know, it's not even in his periphery. And, and I always struggle with that too. I always wonder, you know, behind closed doors of the Fed, are they laughing at us and, and they know exactly what they're doing or do they actually believe, you know, the Phillips curve and, and we need some liquidity for the market and aggregate demand and all these notions. They actually believe, I just, I struggle with that often. And I, I can't tell you um, if I know the answer. Well, you know, a few years ago, we had an event um, where James Grant was one of our guests. And I asked him that very question. I said, are these Fed people, are they true believers or are they just sort of doing what they need to do while they while they uh, pad their Swiss bank accounts and plan their exit? You know, that's a, that's kind of an unpleasant question. But I will say this. Uh, I'm sure you guys are both familiar with Danielle DiMartino Booth. She worked for a period at the Dallas Fed. She told me privately that a Jerome Powell's very smart guy, scary smart, and that when he was being considered for Fed chair, he really ramped up and read very quickly a lot of material. Her opinion was that he's probably familiar with Mises, um, at least you know tangentially. Wouldn't know Rothbard necessarily, but um, you know when we look back, uh, Alan Greenspan was so opaque. He was just a master at giving these 300 word paragraph answers that said nothing. And everyone had to go scratch their head and say, oh, my gosh, what does he mean? Should I buy a stock or a house or whatever? And Bernanke was not as skilled, I would say, if the goal is to obfuscate. I would say Bernanke was less skilled. But Powell doesn't have that at all. He seems to just speak very plainly. Right. And just on the issue of you know whether they're smart in the general sense. To me, so yes, it, it does raise red flags for me if they're coming, you know, from the the banking sector, and you know, and they and they've worked for these large, uh, you know, ma major international banks and such. In terms of 
the policies presumably are going to favor their, but, and again, it, it doesn't even need to be completely corrupt with guys smoking cigars in back rooms, even though it could be that, but it's just more, you know, you're the kind of person coming from that environment. It's just inconceivable to you that you would oversee, you know, the destruction of household names and things like that. Um, but beyond that, to me, it's, whereas academics, like somebody, you know, let's pick on my favorite nemesis, Paul Krugman. I mean, he's very intelligent in a certain sense, but in another sense, he's completely clueless. And I, and I, and I'm not saying that just to be funny or something like I, I really do mean that in, in certain academics or like, uh, you know, Paul Samuelson famously kept updating his textbook and thinking the Soviet union was going to overtake the U S right until the, the very near end of the collapse of the, of the country. So clearly you can, if you're coming from academia, you can be intelligent, but really miss certain things. Whereas if you're in the private sector, making loans or overseeing acquisitions and things like that, you kind of have to you know, have some common sense at least and know how the world works. It doesn't mean you're moral, obviously, or that you're what you're going to do is going to help humanity. But I, I do think there's there's a more presumption that you kind of understand different factors and how they relate if you're coming from the private sector. Robert, do you think Powell has street smarts? Uh, it's hard. It depends. Um, he's he's smart too you know, make a success of himself, right? He became, you know, net worth of $50 million. So, you know, he, he can get it done. He can make money. He can make connections. Uh, see, when I think of streets, uh, sorry, of street smarts, I think of streets, right? Right. <laughs> um, right. And I, I always take offense because Powell, I notice he says a lot of the times about, you know, you know, blacks and minorities and, and poor people and this. And, and to me, you know, he's speaking to the streets, but... I mean, as far as, you know, blacks or minority or just poor, even, you know, poor white people, poor everyone, right? I mean, the Fed, it, it has to be the, the the number one cause of poverty in my book, right? Um, so then when they say things like the discrepancy between, you know, the poor and the minority, it just always rubs me the wrong way because he's not really in tune to what the average American even or, or person is struggling with. So uh, I always find it somewhat offensive or even humorous, right? Well, let's talk about the contrast then between him and Bernanke. Um, I had a few dealings with him working for Dr. Paul during those years. Um, as a matter of fact, he had breakfast with Ron uh, personally one time simply because Ron sat on the Financial Services Committee and the Fed chairs made it you know, a practice to try to get to know them and have some re outreach. And so Ron can tell you a little bit about that breakfast, which was apparently polite, but a little stilted. Um, you know, Bernanke was a very different animal than Powell, I think. I mean, more of a pure wonk, um, brilliant, another brilliant guy, but Powell seems more, um, you know, more like an investment banker. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, well that's exactly why, well, as far as once, you know, I've been talking the last few months or writing about, you know, as soon as the market crashes, um, you know, I think the Fed is going to reverse course, you know, in a heartbeat. It's not even it's not even a question. Uh, and he recently wrote how they're going to raise until, you know, they tamed inflation. Um, but I, I just can't see that because I refuse to believe that, uh, say, a year later, you're going to have rates at, you know, three point five, four percent you know, a trillion dollars reduced from the balance sheet. I mean, in my book, I think if we can make it to October, if we can make it five months of tapering, uh, I think that's the best we can get. I, I can't see how, you know, like you said, all his 
you know, their stock investments, you know, Nancy Pelosi's portfolio. I just can't see how that can all go to ruin, right? So I guess we'll see. Yeah, let me uh, just mention a few things. The, yes, the contrast, again, Bernanke was an academic, and you really see that. And, and this is what was funny, to me at least. Uh, so as an academic, he, uh, he, he wrote on, I don't know if it was his dissertation or not, but he, you know, he, he, what he was known for was his analysis of the Great Depression and how it was uh, you know, extending Milton Friedman's analysis and conclusion saying that the Fed was just too timid there. And, the you know, for the, it was, well, there was a power vacuum because the head guy died and whatever. And in the late 20s and the Fed didn't inflate enough because when the banking panics ensued and the public was taking their money in the banks, the Fed needed to pump in even more money to more than compensate. So that was Milton Friedman's hypothesis. That the reason the 1930s or at least the initial contraction was so bad was that the Fed was asleep at the wheel. Of course, you know, the Rothbard and other Austrians say it's the Fed inflated too much in the 20s, and that's what caused the, the acid bubble. Um, but what was interesting is so, and then also with Bernanke's analysis of what the Bank of Japan should have been doing in the 90s. And so, and then that's where he got the, you know, the, the nickname Helicopter Ben, you know, was he was, again, saying when you're in a situation that you want to just flood the market with liquidity, and that's how you get out of this kind of a rut. And so then when in office, when the financial crisis hit, and then Bernanke, a lot of people don't know this, I, I'm sure Mises.org followers do, but it was in the f fall of 2008 that the Fed started paying interest on reserves. So the way I like to describe it is the Fed began paying commercial banks to not make loans to their customers. Like, that's one way of putting it. And it was hilarious was all these like guys like Scott Sumner and everybody, they were scratching their heads saying, what? why is Bernanke doing this? I mean, as an academic, he knows the last thing in the world he wants to do right now is to have a contractionary policy put into place. And yet, and you know, so, so to me, that was just kind of funny, like, gee, why would the head of the Federal Reserve be, you know, giving money to bankers all of a sudden when, the, when they're in trouble? I, I, I'm just baffled, you know, because he has academic papers saying you shouldn't do that. This is made, this is most, and they, you know what I mean? Like it was just, they were trying to come up with like some theoretical mechanism in which, as opposed to, well, again, like I go back to my earlier point, maybe the reason he was sitting in that position was they knew he was the kind of guy that would do that if push came to shove. Yeah, absolutely. Robert? It's kind of, oh, sorry, like how Greenspan, because I remember he had a very famous essay about, you know, uh, the gold standard and the importance of gold. And then once he gets in there, he does the 180. So I don't know. There's something just about the, the magic of that building that turns people's heads or <laughs> makes them forget what they wrote. Or <laughs> right, because even with Bernanke, once he left off, I don't know if you should call it office. Once he left that position and, and was you know back, he had some plush job, and that's instantly too how people like explain that mechanism. They kind of know if they do the right things, they're going to have a nice consulting position afterward, um, and so it doesn't have to be they literally you know get money under a park bench or something that some guy drops off in a paper bag. Um, and so, and, and they, and they, and, and he, he became sensible again, right? So Bernanke pre and post fed was actually a decent economist, but when he was in there, he was doing inexplicable things. Yeah. Well, they tend to do all right in life after their <laughs> fed career is over, but you know, you bring up interest on reserves. Of course that was actually passed by Congress that was accelerated into 2008. So that, but that was interest on excess reserves. And as we know now, they're just paying interest on reserves period. Uh, which are fat and happy, by the way, because basically since 07 or 08, successive rounds of quantitative easing asset purchases uh, from commercial banks by the Fed, they have lots and lots and lots uh, parked at the Fed in their accounts. So our friend, Miss Shedlock, 
uh, actually published something the other day about how the interest rate on reserve balances has been ris- has been raised to 0.9 percent, just just below one percent. And given the uh, current state of bank reserves at about 3.875 trillion at the Fed, that's going to yield about 34 something billion dollars in interest paid to commercial banks. So that could have uh, that could have sent some baby formula to Ukraine right there. Uh, $35 billion. But instead, we'll just send those over to the commercial banks. But I, I want to talk a little bit more. I mean, Bernanke's a boring guy. I mean, he's he's he, he, and he's, you know, Greenspan's far more interesting and, and far more inscrutable. Of course, we all know famously his history. Uh, you know, he started out as a, as a as a trained musician. He went to Juilliard. I mean, Juilliard is where the, you know, the best musicians train and a, a, a clarinet, among other instruments, was a jazz musician. And, you know, people forget this. He went back later in life in his 50s and actually finished his Ph.D. at, at Bob's alma mater of NYU. And I remember this is a while back, but I remember when Barron's, I believe, got a physical copy of Alan Greenspan's dissertation at NYU, which was a series of articles rather than one, uh, you know, central thesis, which is more common today, less common then. So this is like the 70s when he got his PhD, just maybe 10 years before uh, Reagan made him Fed chair. So that's interesting. And of course, his article, Golden Economic Freedom, which you mentioned, um, that's that's probably one of the best short arguments for gold persuasively written. It came out in the 60s, I want to believe. And it ultimately, it was part of the Ayn Rand Objectivist Club or whatever they were called at the, at the time. Uh, it, was, it was one of their newsletter articles. And then it ultimately found its way into the compendium. Um, it's, it's a series of articles called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal from Ayn Rand. So if you find that, you'll find his article. And, and interestingly, Ron Paul in the early 2000s asked him after a hearing if he would sign his copy of that book, you know, the article within that book. And Ron said, you know, what do you think of this now? And, and, and Greenspan said to him, I wouldn't change a word. So again, I think, Robert, your point is that, you know, there are the sort of intellectual or academic angles to all this. There's the book learning. And then when they get into the job, there is the very real pressure, political, economic, of keeping this whole thing going. And so, you know, these guys today, I don't think they're going to be celebrated the way Greenspan. Remember the maestro, the the uh, bi- a biography that came out about him? I, I think these guys are, first of all, I think there are no Alan Greenspans. And second of all, I think um, they're going to find that they're they're up against it with, especially with federal debt and when it comes to raising interest rates. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, things were easier back then, right? Um, you know, when, you know, when the, the U.S. debt was $1 trillion, you know, an 18% interest rate, it, you know, it didn't matter as much, so to speak. But I mean, you know, at, at $30.5 trillion, even 10%, 5%, I mean, it, it won't take much to effectively bankrupt the whole nation, you know, you know, default mortgages across the country. I mean, there's just less wiggle room, right, as the debt builds. Um, you know, inflation, you know, pressures build. So, yeah, it's just not as easy as it once was. Right? Does that does that mean that because of the federal debt, among other topics, 
Does that mean that these guys will never, ever, ever let interest rates go up again that high? I mean, let, obviously the market sets them, but, yeah. but push interest rates that high so that average people in America will never again be able to simply save in a simple money market or savings account at a rate at or above inflation? Uh, I believe so. I believe that there, you know, we're coming to a stage where there's going to be a choice where it's either we raise rates and, and you get all the negative consequences that come with that, or we keep rates low, but then we have to keep uh, the money supply perpetually increasing, right? Uh, and if you look at history, uh, you know, hyperinflation, it's, it's the norm. It's not the exception. And for them to, you know, let the, the free market rain and just let rates where they go, uh, it will take a lot of restraint um, and just honesty that I don't think that they have. I don't think there's no one, in, even on the Congress side, the Fed side, I, I, just, I just can't imagine a world where we can have even a 5% interest rate other than, you know, a, a little, a, a temporary spike that then they just, you know, paper over with issuing as much currency um, but yeah, I think given the choice between high rates or essentially a currency collapse, I think uh, it's a foregone conclusion. Yeah, I, I agree that I, you know, people talk about like, oh, we need a Volcker or something like that. And I think in some sense, Volcker is, is overrated in terms of what he did. But right. I agree with Robert, Jeff, that I think it would take an, a, an absolute crisis before they really did anything too uh, serious as you as you saw jeff when we were down there in orlando with that uh, recent mises event and i was just going through and and showing um you know i'll explain to the listeners right now that the fed even though the the markets have been doing terribly recently the fed really hasn't actually even tapped the brakes right like they're no. in other words they haven't begun selling off assets or at least no. as of you know the last data point that i looked at they had just stopped buying them yeah. and even in terms of raising rates the yield curve is actually steepening because 10-year yields are rising more than three-month yields. And so to me, what that means is just inflation expectations getting built in that investors are in implicitly raising like what the interest rates need to be and the Fed's even behind that. So yes, raising rates is better than not raising rates in terms of tightening, but they're in a sense falling more behind the curve. And so if the, my point is, if the financial markets are this sensitive just to the Fed kind of saying, hey, at some yeah. point pretty soon we're going to get serious, can you imagine if they actually did start tightening legitimately oh, yes. what a bloodbath that would be? And, and again, I, I just think – so in a sense, it's not just that the debt is much higher now than you know in the late 70s, early 80s when Volcker came along, but also I think the financial markets – partly because of the so-called Greenspan put, have been conditioned to believe that, don't mm -hmm. worry, the Fed's there to bail you out. Nothing really bad's going to happen. Yeah. And, and so they just become addicted to that cheap debt. Yeah, no, yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, and I, I've done the math. Um, starting June, so June, July, August, they're supposed to reduce by $47.5 And then in uh, September, and then on, it's $95 billion. So, um, like, as I said, I, I you know, I'm way, I, I just can't even picture October where you would have reduced by, you know, something like $350 billion um, and interest rates would be what, you know, 2% federal funds rate. Uh, and like you said, look at the stock market right now without even $1 leaving the balance sheet. Now imagine $350 billion and interest rates twice as high in, in four months or five months from now. I mean... 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let me put it this way. The latest unemployment number, right? The official one is 3.6% and inflation is, you know, 8.3, something like that. I mean, those numbers are crazy. That's not supposed to be. And yet the Fed is still timidly saying, well, we're going to start selling off assets really soon now. I mean, that's that's nuts, given those two numbers. Again, so we all know that the unemployment rate's really actually higher than that and all those tricks that they do. But I'm just saying in terms of their own playbook and what their strategy is, when in price inflation is six points higher than it's supposed to be and unemployment is down at 3% and change, I mean, they should have been tightening a long time ago. Well, so you mentioned Paul Volcker. Uh, his biography... His autobiography, which he was able to finish prior to passing away, he made it well into his 90s, is really fascinating. Of course, he's a fascinating character. Um, we were talking about PhDs. Uh, apparently, he had a master's in economics, but that's it. Uh, something like six, seven, uh, and used to, of course, he was always famous for having the cigar and the ashtray at Fed meetings. So that sh shows you how different things were in his time. And again, it, as Robert points out, I mean, dealing with a trillion in debt, was very, very different. But I just wonder today with the midterms coming up, for example, and this is a little bit of convenient history. Uh, this is a little self-serving, but, uh, you know, Volcker is portrayed as having st stood up uh, to Reagan and Carter somewhat uh, and not going along with their uh, political aspirations necessarily, but wanting to do what had to be done to curb inflation, uh, which back then was seen as, you know, raising rates. Do you think that is there anything that Powell and company could do to to try to help or save Biden with respect to the midterms? And, and if so, what might that look like? It's tough. It's yeah, I don't think there's much you could do um, other than just either maybe put the brakes on um, shredding the balance sheet. I, I wonder if they would just say something like, you know, given uh, the return of covid or Ukraine or, you know, formula shortages, maybe, maybe if they just tell the markets we're going to put the, the brakes on and just kind of hold the balance sheet steady, hold rates steady, uh, maybe it would buy some time. Um, or, or I thought maybe they could just tinker with the inflation numbers to, you know, uh, uh, you know, more of a propaganda style of like the Soviet Union and just say, hey, inflation is going down, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not that hard to... You know, if they want 3% inflation, they, a, a statistician could give you that, right? It just takes a, a strong narrative. It's about what you measure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah and uh, the, uh, the relative importance of goods, right? So, I mean, if cars just, you know, if, if they say that they've just gone down in importance, you know, that, that would help. So It's, it's going to be tough, though, because I think they're, they paint themselves into a corner that, I mean, I just filled up my SUV yesterday and I paid $80. And I mean, it's, I think a lot of people, they don't care what the government's telling them the inflation rate is. If, if gas is above 450, they know that's, that's not right. So yes, it might be that the official 12 month increase in CPI starts edging down and maybe it's down to, you know, 6% and change by the election. And they can claim, look at, we're getting it under control. Like, you know, this crazy overheated economy Trump handed us and, you know, Vlad Vladimir with his shenanigans or whatever. But I think people still, you know, if, if they're just getting killed every time they fill up their car and then if they, if they want to accelerate that and they actually do start selling off the balance, I mean, and then cause, you know, a collapse in the financial markets. I mean, that's not good either going into election to have Wall Street get crushed, even if, you know, the average person isn't near retirement and, you know, they're, they don't, they're, oh yeah, my 401k will recover. 
I mean, again, so it's, I, I don't, you know, there's a sense in which the Phillips curve in the short run is, is correct in that sense that I think no matter which way they move right now, it's going to be painful and they're just going to have to try to choose what do we want? You know, do we want this price inflation to keep raging or do we want to just crash the financial sector and either ways, you know, not going to be great. Because also the housing market could collapse. So that's another thing like normal people would care about if all of a sudden, especially you're getting ready to move and then all of a sudden your house drops 10%, you know, that's that's not good either. Well, with a 50 million net worth, it's hard to feel too, too sorry about Powell, but he's up against it. I think this is a very tough job. And if you notice in the Senate vote the other day to reconfirm Powell for another term, something like 80-20 or 83-17 or something like that, there were some interesting no's on that end. You know, Mike Lee and Rand Paul, for example, voted no. But also some left progressives did. Ed Markey, if you know that name, from Senator from Massachusetts. Uh, Bernie Sanders voted no. So I thought that was interesting that it wasn't just, you know, 95 or 97 votes in favor of Powell. So I, I thought that was worth noting. And, you know, uh, Lael Brainerd, had been floated as a possible replacement for him. Uh, you know, she, much like Powell, came up in those settings. You know, her her parents were diplomats and, and she went to elite schools and everything. But she's been discussed a little bit. And, of course, she's a, a board member and also an F, FOMC member. Um, what do we think about Lael Brainerd? Uh, yeah, she would, I guess, be the progressive choice. Um, I think she'd be tough because... Um, with her, those some ideas that are banning about of, uh, you know, ESG or, you know, a climate change Fed or a more progressive Fed. And, you know, it's kind of hard just, you know, it's one thing to talk about price stability and unemployment, but to add a new mandate of climate change and progressive or even wokeism, if it went to that far, I mean, yeah, that'd be a tough choice for sure. I, I mean... Yeah, I, I still lament, uh, you know, Judy Shelton not getting her shots. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, talk about Judy Shelton. She was treated very shabbily. Uh, you know, first of all, she was a Trump nominee to the board. So, you know, all, automatically she was attacked just for that. Plus, she had said and written some nice things about gold in the past, which is verboten at the Fed. And so this letter, which was signed by about 100 economists, a bunch of former Fed people, I think Stiglitz and some other Nobel Prize winner signed it. I thought it was really untoward. And also, the, you know, the fact that she came from, forgive me, I believe University of Utah. I hope I'm not, I hope it wasn't Utah State. I believe it was University of Utah where she got a PhD in public administration. So, you know, the idea that you could have real diversity on the Fed board in the terms of someone who's not from that, that warm, soft, womb-like embrace of the Ivies and the Northeast uh, that has a populist or a more pugnacious view of money and the economy, you know, just for the diversity itself. I mean, I, I thought that was it was pretty shabby in, in, on the part of not only the the, the the economists who signed the letter, but also the the financial media and their treatment of Judy Shelton. Yeah, yeah, and even Mitt Romney, who is a Utah, I believe he's Utah senator, voted against her. And he's a Republican. So that I remember reading that. And that just, you know, that just that just took me real, made me upset. Right. Um, but, yeah, the media treated unfairly. I think even Schiller signed the letter. Like, it was a pretty bold letter that people were just saying, like, we just can't have this. You know, it's I, I don't know. It's a whole new um, for, for someone that talks about diversity, you know, inclusion, diversity, you know, uh, physical diversity. 
there's not that intellectual diversity, right? Absolutely. Um, and and it wasn't even it wasn't even for her to helm the Fed. It was just to be a one member of a voting board, right? So I mean, um, yeah, it was a big that was a big error, and and I, yeah, I remember it was Mitt Romney voted against that as a Republican. That was tough too. It was funny, guys. I was just trying to look up because I think for Mises.org, I had written something about a particular. I don't know if it was from that letter that was signed, but in general, yes, the financial. It, it, I want to say it was, um, you, you know, like those those guys who run Vox or it was Ezra Klein. So it was somebody of that nature that was coming at her and just, you know, correcting her with the most elementary like, oh, she claims this about the way things worked under the gold standard. But this is, a you know, it would be somebody said something like it would be hard for to pack more error into two sentences. And they had a quote from her and it was like something. And then some, you know, pundit was taking that remark from a prominent economist and wrote a whole article. And in context, what she said was completely straightforward. So I was just trying to look that up because I know I wrote that up for Mises.org and I saw why the MSM hates Judy Selton and the author was Robert something, but it was a Robert Aro piece. So yeah, yeah. I <laughs> I couldn't find well, that. But I mean, the other I thing I that. love the other thing I love about her is that her her and her husband live on a farm. You know that alone is like when you think of a Fed uh, board member. Do you think of someone living on a farm? You you probably don't. Um, you know, but but again, they love Lael Brainerd. And as far as this ESG stuff goes and the progressive overlay, which is becoming part of central banking, I mean, this is more advanced in Europe. And maybe we should touch on Christine Lagarde. But uh, the idea that central banks should take diversity and climate change and other social causes uh, under their umbrella, you know, we got the dual mandate with the Fed. Well, pretty soon it's going to be tripartite or, or, or four things or whatever it might be. Uh, I actually have a paper coming out in a uh, European journal of ethics and politics, uh, and it's titled Evolution or Corruption, and it's about language. Uh, and so I have a whole section in the paper on, on woke central bankers and how they've started to uh, weave in all this language about equity, where we used to use equality and so forth, and talking about climate change and talking about diversity. I mean, Lael Brainerd's a female, and so she brings a, an element of it, but you know, it's only a certain kind of female. That, that they want, as we see with Judy Shelton now. Um, any thoughts on Christine Lagarde? She always strikes me as the kind of woman that uh, elites really celebrate, you know, because they like to see a woman in charge and very accomplished and very well educated. But um, in many ways, I think she's been a disaster. Yeah, I'll, I'll just j jump in. So again, this, this transition, like we said, like from academics to, you know, people with more just standard experience. Uh, so for Mario Draghi, who was before her as the head of the ECB, he had a PhD in economics from MIT. He got it under Modigliani and Solo. So, I mean, those are big names in that, you know, in that sector. He had been an academic professor. And then, you know, he went into more political things. Um, he worked at Goldman Sachs, governor of the Bank of Italy. And then he was the head of the ECB from 2011 to 2019 before moving on to becoming prime minister. Whereas Lagarde, she has a, a law background. And so she was, um, you know, went to law school she became, uh, she was like the first female, I don't know if, if the term was partner, but in terms of, you know, looking through her pedigree, she had a lot of firsts for a female as she was going through stuff. French minister of finance, head of the uh, managing director of the IMF, and then finally president of the ECB uh, started there in November of 2019. So she's, like you say, Jeff, being celebrated, you know, does not have this wonkish background and more of a legal background. Even in, in the law, she was like focusing on antitrust and labor relations 
and things like that, you know, as opposed to just, you know, purely business relations. Um, so I, I think you're right that there is this transition away from the academics. And, and, and so maybe this is all part of the same pattern, you know, moving to people who have there's more plugged into different organizations and they check the box on certain characteristics of, you know, the first so-and-so. Um, and, and, but even so she still does have like all these people, they have this, um, it's kind of like with the Klaus Schwab's they're, they're not like radical Marxists that they still, you know, in other words, certain purists on the left don't like Lagarde because they think she's too much about privatization of state assets and things like that. You know what I mean? So it's, so we as Austrian libertarians know they still want government control, but it's sort of a, you know, like a, a managed capitalism or what have you. But, but again, it's, uh, they are not radical activists either. And the same thing with, with Leonard, like she was at Brookings for a while too. So these people are not marching in the streets, power to the people. They are connected, politically connected, plugged in people. And I think they know the rhetoric to use, um, in certain situations to make it look like they're fire breathing radicals when they're really not. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it shows you whether it is a man or a woman or whether they're a, you know, an academic or a lawyer, Ultimately, once you get that position of power, I mean, whatever you believe before that position has, you know, it changes, right? And, and you're towing whatever the narrative or whatever the line is or whoever's preparing these lines. I mean, you, you're executing them, right? Well, and of course, Europe has its own version of the Ivy League. And there's, there's a very depressing sameness to these central bankers. They all sort of come from the same elite background and the same schools. I mean, that's why in a sense, Mario Draghi was at least Italian and a little pugnacious and uh, apparently enjoyed a cocktail or two from time to time. And, and sometimes even in public settings might've had a cocktail or two too many. Uh, I don't think you'll see that from Lagarde. Uh, th this is a very measured person. And, and um, so these people uh, uh, come out of a mold and, you know, they have a, an internationalist or globalist viewpoint, which is fine in a sense. I think it's harmful in a, in a very real sense. I think the ECB has been an absolute disaster for not, not just sovereignty in Europe, but also for uh, the, the wealthier countries in Europe. I think the Germanys and are, are, are subsidizing the Greeces as a result of this um, shared currency. And it causes a lot of problems when there's a, a turndown. You know, you can't protect yourself the way uh, Iceland was able to protect itself after its bank problems in 2008 because they still had the Icelandic kroner, which they could devalue against and let it float. Well, you know, if they'd had the euro, they'd have had a real hard time uh, paying employees, for example, uh, and getting unemployment uh, under control. So there's a lot, to, you know, a lot goes into this. But the Lagards of the world, they're very committed globalists. Um, I, you know, I can't imagine that they see the world much differently than Jerome Powell does. But, but what's so depressing is that, you know, anyone who's just slightly outside of that, uh, like the aforementioned Judy Shelton, uh, just seems to be treated as a pariah. And especially when we get into younger central bankers under 40, who are never going to really have known a true uh, down market in a, in a, at least in a nominal sense. Uh, people who until recently never knew real, you know, heavy duty inflation. Um, you know, if you come up through the Dylan Reeds and the Carlisles of the world, if you come up through the Whartons and the Harvards and the Princetons and the Sarbones uh, and the Oxfords, I mean, you know, the kind of wokeism which Lael Brainerd exhibits and professes is going to be imbued in everything central banks do. 
I think we have to prepare for that. And so, um, you know, can they keep it together? I guess is the question I'll leave you to with. Can they keep it together? And number two is how do we begin to think about unyoking ourselves from this system? Because obviously it's fraught and uh, it's also very immoral. And it's a huge driver of inequality and inflation and all kinds of suffering in the world. So, so can they keep it together? And how do we protect ourselves? Okay, so I'll jump in. Um, I think my guess is there's at least a let's say a, a year before like utter collapse again because like as I pointed out that Orlando event, Jeff, that the yield curve actually, even though it flirted with inverting. It's moving the other way at this point. So if you know if history repeats itself, it would have to officially invert before a, ma- a major recession hits. Um, so in that sense, I think they do have a little bit more time. Even though you know, for our point of view, if everyone thought like us, there'd be a huge crash immediately because everybody would see the writing on the wall. But yet, I think a lot of people they don't believe in economic law, or they just you know they refuse to you know oh it can't be that bad because if it you know if the fundamentals are saying it's this awful. I just don't want to go down that path. And so they just, you know, suspend their, their belief. Um, and then all the woke stuff. Yeah. I think that is partly how they're buying more time for themselves that they realize the the jig is almost up. And so, yeah, we have to now, you know, allow a bunch of people to come in who previously did not have seats at the table. And that's how we'll buy their silence for, you know, another cycle. And, you know, by giving, you know, groups, activist groups now getting more, um, play, you know, they'll, they'll sort of subdue their criticism. Oh, okay, like like even with the CIA, how they're, you know, they're, people should go to YouTube and check it out if you haven't seen it. Even the CIA is openly showing now how they're recruiting people from different backgrounds and whatever. So, I mean, everybody's into this stuff. And I think it's partly because, yeah, they want to buy themselves some time to, you know, as, as this stuff collapses. Yeah. Robert? Uh, <clears throat> that's a good question. I mean, yeah, I think the the jig is up, so to speak. Um, you know, you could fool people for a long time, but you, you can't fool them forever. Um, and eventually, you know, if people find that they just can't afford things like meals, if there's shortages, if if America gets to that point, um, like I, I saw in um, an upcoming article, oh, one said one fifth of people in Britain they skip a meal um, just because inflation pressures is so bad, right? And you get these little just cracks and, and you know, it, you know America, you know, it, it's not going to end. The world will always turn. But I think we will at some point, whether it's, you know, this year or five years or by the next decade, you know, I think we'll have to enter a new era because essentially we're just living in an unsustainable time um, and something has to give, right? Um, either we, you know, we raise rates and we live with that. Or we keep rates down forever, and then we have to live with that. But you know, we can't just stay in limbo, and the, the, you know, the debt will grow, and and um, you know, price will rise, people will get poorer, the income disparity will raise. Um, I just think, yeah, I think they're just buying time, and whenever you know everything comes, the chickens come home to roost. I think um, you know, if we as the free market crowd, I think that would be our time to, you know, somehow, you know, somehow move society, whether it's, you know, on the grander scale succession of states or, or it's some radical change. I think something will happen. Um, so I think, you know, I think we're in the right area. I think we, we have the answer. The free market is the right answer. Um, so I, I just hope that we can, as a society, just get as many people to 
understand that. And, and ultimately, that would be the only real answer, would be a, a free market solution, for sure. Well, I agree. I think there's going to be some sort of great reset for money. I think there's going to be some kind of debt jubilee. And, and let's face it, people who loan governments money ought to take a haircut on that bond debt. That's, that's one approach. Um, you know, you loan money to psychopaths who can't stop spending. So there's going to be something to probably be international, global, under the auspices of maybe the IMF. For example, James Rickards, author of Currency Wars, writes a lot about this. I recommend his stuff, although I don't always agree with him. And I think that no matter how you look at it, the United States comes out of all of this less powerful. I don't think the rest of the world is going to accept forever and ever that we just get to have king dollar and the world's reserve currency. I don't, uh, you know, um, that's not in the interest of the rest of the world. Even the Europeans, I think, uh, are very much starting to see that. So all that said, again, I want to encourage people to follow Robert Aro at Econ Circus on Twitter. Uh, Follow Dr. Bob Murphy on Twitter, and we will be back next Friday with another show. So have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.